Hello, my name's Moray Gamble from the Permaculture Education Institute and welcome to the first of this special four-part series on Sense Making in a Changing World podcast with internationally acclaimed localization ac- activist Helena Norberg-Hodge. Helena is the founder and director of Local Futures, an international non-profit organization dedicated to renewing ecological and social well-being by strengthening communities and local economies worldwide. Helena's first book, Ancient Futures, has been translated into 40 languages and sold over 1 million copies. She's been the subject of hundreds of articles and written many books, including her latest book, Local is Our Future, Steps to an Economics of Happiness, which accompanies her award-winning documentary, also called The Economics of Happiness. Helena's work spans almost five decades with support and collaboration with leading ecological thinkers. She's been the recipient of a Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel Peace Prize, and also the Goy Peace Prize. I first met Helena back in 1992 at Schumacher College and was absolutely inspired by the work that she was doing and subsequently volunteered with her in Ladakh or Little Tibet. So in these set of conversations, these four conversations, the first one here is about the global economy. And then next we dive in and discuss the food system, focusing on our community and ecology in the third conversation. And in our fourth and final conversation, looking at big picture activism and where to from here. So grab your notebook, listen in with friends, follow up by watching Helena's films and delving into her study group materials and localization action guide. So before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which I'm meeting with you today. I'm here on the unceded lands of the Gubby Gubby people and on the banks of the Mukabula River. So sit back and enjoy, and thank you so much for being here as part of this series of conversations with Helena Norberg-Hodge. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Helena. It's an absolute delight to have you on the show. We've been talking about doing something like this for a while now, and I'm yeah. we were actually talking about doing it face-to-face, but then COVID happened and we're across borders that have been kind of closed for a while. So it's, yeah. it's lovely to have this chance to to come together and do this. Very good to see you too. Yeah. So just just for the for the listeners, um, I met Helena, gosh, in 1992. I think I was 23 and it was at Schumacher College and you were talking about the work you were doing in Ladakh and something about the way you spoke, about the big picture of what you were speaking about, what was happening in Ladakh and what the insights that you got from that just switch something in me that has been kind of the flame that I think has been underpinning everything I do ever since. And, and you know, the, the heart of the active, young activist and someone who wants to make a difference, there's something about how you have always presented your work. I think it makes so much sense. And it's the, and it's, it's the way of understanding that I think we all need to hear. So I'm so delighted that we've got this chance to do a series to start with big picture thinking, like what is the need for systemic change, and then going into food systems, economy, education, and unpacking this as we go. So welcome to the show, Helena. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, and, you know, I don't think anyone has ever got through doing a permaculture course with me without being exposed to, to ancient futures, the economics of happiness and your work. Because I think, you know, when we're looking at this local action, having that big picture is, is absolutely critical. And, uh, you know, it's actually the understanding of the need for local food systems and relocalization and why that is is actually how I ended up focusing on permaculture itself as a as an application of that big picture thinking so maybe we could start with you know just diving into the deep end of saying well what is the what is the need for systems change I know we're facing so many multiple crises in the world that are you know they're interconnected crises where is the systems change or the systemic change that you see that needs to happen and what's inspired you to see that 
Yeah, well, it's been, you know, what inspired me to see it was these experiences in Ladakh and also in Bhutan and later on in other traditional land-based cultures. But essentially, the big picture that we need is to look at, broadly speaking, the economic system. But the economic system today has also become a global consumer culture that's being imposed worldwide. It's become a system that is shaping knowledge, that's shaping schooling, that's shaping the media, that's shaping the world. It's also shaping democracy and basically annihilating democracy. So when we, when, you know, when I talk about the economy, I'm talking about this global system that now literally affects all aspects of life across the world. And that system uh, as an external system, not something that emanates from the world itself. It's not some kind of evolutionary path that was implemented by people who wanted to become bigger and bigger. You know, human beings don't get bigger and bigger. Human beings get big and then they start shrinking and then they die. That's the way of the living world. So this economic system is the system that needs to be shifted if we want to deal with climate change, if we want to deal with the frightening gap between rich and poor, which is in every single country I know of emerging. Really, you know, from my native country of Sweden to Bhutan to the most remote corners of the world, this gap is widening in in such an obvious and really obscene way. Uh, at the same time, the the um, you know the issue of climate change is often focused on as almost the only environmental issue, but we've got this in many ways more obvious and more frightening. Uh, trend, which is the extinction of biodiversity, the extinction of, of diversity mm-hmm. of all kinds of cultures, languages, and biological diversity. So, yeah, these system change that I'm talking about is the economic system, and it's it's cultural and worldview manifestation. Mm. So, how do we start? to tackle that because it is so it is everywhere like you say it's this global corporate consumer culture and yet we are individuals communities organizations that are within this so this is kind of some of the key questions that you explore like and i'm so interested to hear how you can describe this big picture activism and thinking about how we can, well, first of all, what is going, what is driving that consumer culture and what are some of those underpinning challenges that you see there that we need to address and we need to call out and how can we do that from where we sit? I I think the... um the central thread that we've been trying to raise awareness about for a long time is that there have been a series of trade treaties that were brought in, particularly after the Second World War, they were brought in after the Second World War, along with the so-called Bretton Woods Institution. The World Bank and the IMF were brought in along with something called the GATT, which was the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Now, a lot of people were critical of the World Bank's activities and the IMF, but they didn't focus on the trade treaties. They were somehow, from left to right, everybody thought, yeah, yeah, trade is a good thing, global trade is fine. So there has been very little awareness of how these treaties are the reason, the absolutely main reason, why global banks and other corporations have become so powerful in these last 35 years in particular. So it took off after the Second World War, and many well-intentioned people were convinced that this was a way to avoid another world war, to avoid another depression, 
So a lot of well-intentioned people supported this idea of integrating economic activity worldwide. But what wasn't recognized was that global traders in food, in pharmaceuticals, in engineering, in military, these global corporations were already very powerful. And the Second World War in many ways was about whose corporations were going to win. So the role of global trade and global traders really had not been recognized as something that was very destructive. Could you just stop there and explain what you just said? Because I don't think I've really heard it said that way, that the Second World War was about, had... A lot to do with it. Can you just talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I haven't studied it in detail, but I, I, I there, and I can't even remember the titles of the books that did describe in greater detail the way that what was emerging in Japan and in Germany were these very powerful, particularly chemical uh, corporations. In Germany, it was one was called IG Farben, which was a very powerful large corporation and they were developing very effective techniques uh, you know useful in the modern world using fossil fuels and in America DuPont was the sort of counterpart and and similarly in Japan these developments were going on so from the um, the sort of books that I've skimmed and seen over the years it was clear that the competition between these corporations and between these countries was very much linked to who was going to be controlling resources, global trade, who was going to have more, uh, both more resources and more control, you know, more market control. Um, so there, that was clear. And in this little film that we launched this week called Local, it's only an eight-minute film, and we, we tried to, to show that we really have to go back to the beginnings of the modern economy to understand why global trade is problematic. And so we tried to show that the beginnings of this modern economy started with slavery and enclosures. And enclosures in Europe meant that elites pushed people off the land through regulations. As they pushed them into a sort of Dickensian London, you know, which Dickens would write about, they had broken down the social cohesion that people had developed in, in, in order to live off the land together and sustainably. It wasn't perfect, you know, there had been conflicts and problems. But they did have more human-scale, decentralized or localized institutions. And now suddenly they were forced off the land, fragmented, suddenly competing in this urban situation. No land, no resources. And, of course, these cities in the beginning were filthy, you know, pollution, illness, theft, breakdown. And sadly... A lot of the story of progress starts there. So the narrative we're told is, ooh, look at that, all that illness and the crime and the mess. And aren't we lucky that we had the economy and progress to grow out of that mess? So what we're saying is, wait a minute, we actually need to start re-examining whether living in a more decentralized way, not so dependent on a tiny elite and not so dependent on global trade could actually be better for the majority of people. So what we show is that as this was happening, it was the globally active traders who were doing really well, you know, using slaves and gathering resources from around the world, you know, having people growing cotton on one side of the world and then having this cheap labor in London who would then turn that cotton into cloth. So this is to look at global trade as promoted by and as implemented by the modern economy. 
as compared to trade, which always existed forever, even global trade, even in very traditional indigenous cultures. And, it, you know, it's not to say that we need to go back to uh, the way things were then, but it is to be aware of how it is that power has concentrated in the hands of global corporations for a very long time. So even pre then, you know, from the 1700s till the First World War and then the Second World War, these global traders and corporations were becoming more and more powerful. And then after the Second World War, that was sort of instituted in, with the help of these institutions that were now overtly trying to integrate economic activity. So just stopping and, and just rewinding a few sentences there, you were saying that the, the power was concentrating more and more in these corporations. How did they get that power? How was that power extracted from people? Well, you know, when you when you, the way I I always wanted to try to do like an animation about this, and I worked at one point with an animator, and I was going to show how when the kings sent out the sort of Christopher Columbus characters across the world to gather wealth, you know, the gold and the jewelry and 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 they went across the world to sort of conquer the world. The kings were in charge and they, they were sort of funding them and the boats were still, you know, as it were, under the control of the rulers. Mm-hmm. And and later on, as these traders benefited from the trade and they became wealthier and wealthier, I was gonna try to show, you know, this human figure like Christopher Columbus suddenly a century later or so morphing into, you know, high-rise buildings, you know, sort of symbolizing these giant corporations and banks. Because interestingly enough, when you look at it, in the banking world, it was also through this globalizing of the economy that banks started changing how they handled our wealth. So it used to be that we thought we were, you know, we were putting the money in somebody's hand and they were keeping it there. But then they started being able to create money out of keeping our money and something, you know, called fractional reserve was created where they only kept a fraction of that wealth so that if, you know, say in a town, if suddenly everybody wanted their money back, it wouldn't be there. But so they were able to have this make believe. Now, that, and I can't tell you the details of exactly to what obscene proportions that has escalated, but this took on in new dimensions roughly around the same time as the whole global corporate world got more and more power. And one of the signposts was when things moved away from having at least, you know, in the beginning, gold as a standard, and then later on the dollar as a standard. And now we're talking about these financial institutions creating wealth, essentially because we've given them the power to do so. When I first discovered that the National Bank wasn't owned by our government, for example, these... These yeah. these uh, ideas that we have about our money and how it's kept and how it's managed and how it's about you know giving us back interest like it's a self interesting where it's 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 really not that at all and so being caught into that um, yeah mm. I was just going to say that I I remember a banker telling me that he could see that in his bank the young guys were developing these amazing instruments using computers. And they come back and tell the bosses who are older that, ooh, you know, we've got this new mechanism now. And the the older boys would say, okay, go ahead. But it was in this convoluted internet world where hedge funds and layer upon layer of essentially of speculation, competition, uh, and so on, dominated to the point that in 2008 there was a little bit of a of a sort of expose of what was happening as there was this huge crash, 
And we realized then that these young guys were having lots of fun gambling with our mortgages, with our lives. And it ended up costing, you know, a lot of people their life savings. Mm -hmm. At that point, the whole world knew we need to regulate these banks. We need to have some democratic process that actually looks at what's going on and regulates it. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't done, you know, and that's what's scary is that that sort of bubble of an economic system that it cannot, cannot be it's just not capable of being supportive of life. It's not capable of, of, it's not being demanded that it stays within some kind of realm of democratically, you know, ordained rules and regulations, some kind of limits. No, and and my fear is that since 2008 till now, that the sort of quadrillions of dollars that are being generated, that's, this is really what I think we have to understand is that it, it constitutes this sort of giant air bubble of wealth that isn't real wealth. And the winners inside this big bubble playing with well, quadrillions, trillions, and billions of dollars are, um, you know, are doing you know, nothing productive, but on the contrary, they're not capable of genuinely productive work. It doesn't, it's not about evil people. It's not about even the people inside those bubbles um, who are really winning as it were by earning you know, these ridiculous amounts of money. It's not so much that they're such evil people. It's what we have is a truly evil system. Mm -hmm. I would say it's an evil system because it's dividing us from ourselves, from the earth and and from one another. It's It's a, destructive system and also it's uh you know keeping whole nations whole continents in poverty and i wonder whether you could speak a little bit about the the global north global south difference and how this is being supported by the trade agreements and yeah subsidies and all those other the sort of narrative that talks about rich countries and poor countries is really outdated and perhaps it was always exaggerated because I remember talking already in the early 90s, probably when I met you, about how in Bombay, Mumbai, you know, the houses cost more than they did in the west of London. And I was trying to point out that the, the really wealthy in India were much more wealthy than the wealthy in the west. So we had to start looking more at the injustice of this wealth creation by the few at the expense of the many and that our numbers, you know, where we were saying, that was the story I was also talking about with Ladakh, that hearing about someone only earning a dollar a day could actually be extremely misleading mm -hmm. when it was in a place like Ladakh or Bhutan where people had all their food, their clothing, their shelter, their water, their health care, all of it without money. And so then the dollar a day was just for luxury. So they were actually better off than definitely as part of the build-up to all of this when countries were enslaved and people were enslaved on one side of the world and they were selling to the rich countries. There was a discrepancy in, in wealth as counted by money. But I actually now think that for a very, very long time, the people in the industrialized world, you know, in the West, who were told how wealthy they were and how well off they were, were subjected to a lot of propaganda about a progress that wasn't actually progress. Mm. So if you imagine, you know, London in the 1700s, you know, with this incredible filth and pollution. But then, you know, you look at it, you know, 100 years later or, yeah, say, let's say 100 years later, there was, there was what was happening was the gap between rich and poor was widening and the people who were less well off uh, were not doing particularly well at all. Mm -hmm. And then and then I often also try to explain that, say, Sweden in the 70s, all of Scandinavia, especially, well, maybe especially 
Sweden, because Sweden industrialized faster. But there you had, you know, everything clean, everything comfortable, but people had been shoved away from the land. Farming had essentially been, you know, taken over by machines. So fossil fuels transformed the economy onto another level of driving even more people off the land into high-rise buildings, again using fossil fuels, cement, you know, unattractive, unhealthy materials. And of course, the farming was a disaster, fungicides, herbicides, chemical fertilizers, very unhealthy. And people were in this process of being shoved on top of each other, like literally on top of each other in these high-rise apartments, they were pushed into a system where they had no knowledge of each other. They didn't even know each other's names. Mm. Whereas in the rural areas, in the smaller towns and cities, people knew each other. They depended on each other. They knew that family has a furniture factory. Here are the farmers who have produced the wheat that this baker is baking. And there was that interdependence of human-scale institutions. And in the meanwhile, in a in a place like Sweden, as people were there, crowded on top of each other, cut off from life. I used to come back from Ladakh, you know, and talk about this, you know, I was talking about the economics of happiness going back to the 70s, and just seeing that there was deep depression and anxiety there, alcoholism, you know, um, and it was no wonder. I used to talk about way back then, how even having a goldfish could help people have a sense of meaning and purpose because normally you wouldn't even have that. You know, the ultimate is that you don't even have a live plant. You have a plastic plant because mm. you, you know, can't be bothered with looking after that bit of life. So it's, you know, cut off from family. A lot of these patterns that you're talking about are things that you talked about through the example of, of Ladakh. Yeah. that you notice there and that, that you see, see repeating over and over and over again. And, um, you know, I think what I was asking too behind the question of, of the different countries, I do a fair bit of work now with communities in in Africa, in East Africa in particular, and it feels like there is a distinct, like it's not just between the rich and the poor in the country, it feels like there is a distinct extraction model and, um, continued oppression there and uh, a destabilization of communities to make sure that those resources can continue to be extracted. And, you know, wondering whether you had any insights into the the sort of the underlying forces of, of that because it's, you know, it's devastating communities. Yeah, I mean, again, that's so completely the part of the wealth creation by these giant corporations. And there, that's when it could look like, you know, they're being exploited, the mining, especially for electronic gadgets. And mm-hmm. and then as long as we believe that people in the West are really genuinely better off because they've got their mobile phones and so on, um, you know, it looks like, you know, over there they're paying the price and we're, winning as it were but I just don't see it that way mm-hmm. I just see so is this this is yeah. is this what you were talking uh, years and years ago about counter development or yeah. yeah so you just want to speak a bit about that because I think it's in important it's shifting shifting what the goal the societal goal is isn't it yeah. really yeah yeah well counter development I came up with that term because People would assume that I was there in Ladakh, where you know I had I had come into a culture that hadn't been affected by modern by the modern economy. They hadn't been developed. They they were still essentially living according to their own values and their own resources. And not I like to talk about community reliance rather than self reliance. They were you know, growing their own food. That's trading in the region and building their own houses, still making their own clothing. It was quite remarkable at that late date to experience that degree mm-hmm. of, of self-reliance or community reliance. And 
And I came across the, you know, the most vibrant, happiest people I'd ever encountered. And then as I stayed, and I at first was working on the language, when I then saw uh, what started happening, I, I became sort of an ambassador for the Ladakhis to explain that this propaganda, basically, that was coming in, that made them feel that they were backward and stupid, made them feel that farming was like a shameful activity to have your fingernails dirty, when you could have a job in the city with completely clean hands, and, and when, if you wanted to be respected in any way or loved, you needed to have these consumer gadgets. So I saw young people in particular in the beginning getting affected by this and feeling ashamed backwards and so on. So there, there was this great need to, to do what I call counter-development to explain that actually in the West, by that time already, there were people who were beginning to appreciate growing a garden with their own hands. They were actually often quite wealthy people who were building adobe houses like in Santa Fe, Mm -hmm. Houses were very similar to the houses in Ladakh, made of mud brick and adobe, and even with the same kind of ceiling, beautiful wood ceilings. And I started bringing information to the Ladakhis to show there's absolutely no need to feel ashamed or backward. On the contrary, people who are well off are also actually choosing mm -hmm. to live closer to nature. They, they don't want to be off in a city without trees or birds or life. And so uh, and there's a new appetite for the natural. They prefer to have more natural food, more natural fibers. So that was the, the counter-development, which was also accompanied by evidence of how, for instance, in Sweden, the main driver behind the organic movement came out and explained how they had to battle in Sweden to get um, the government to stop promoting so many toxic pesticides and chemicals and how they were promoting organic agriculture. And this was countering the propaganda that the Indian government was bringing in with literally promoting DDT and other outlawed pesticides, mm -hmm. building a hospital with asbestos, and then people would find bits, find bits of broken asbestos and were baking their bread on it. And that kind of lack of knowledge of the possibility that people who were smiling and friendly would come and tell you, fine to bake your bread on this, you know, fine to use these pesticides. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out to be really bad for you. That situation had never happened in their traditional experience so it was very hard for them you know to believe that these friendly experts could be telling them the wrong thing mm. so, yeah I mean that's of course still what's going on in the west today also yeah yeah absolutely but the same you know people are more and more wanting that kind of way of life that Ladakhi people had originally you know the qualities of that life. And what, just just before we move on, what is happening in Ladakh these days? How is how is life in Ladakh? Well, it's now for us it's quite wonderful that there are younger people who are continuing with the work that we started to promote more mm -hmm. organic agriculture and and just now actually, even maybe this week. They're having a conference with the local government. The local government is now, um, has a little bit of power. It's essentially a Ladakhi mm -hmm. government. But it's still, you know, the pressures of tourism have increased, particularly Indian tourism. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's very much like the rest of the world now where there are some people who definitely want to put the brakes on this mainstream development mm -hmm. and around the issue of food security are really mm -hmm. concerned to keep Ladakhi food production and agriculture alive and to have it be organic mm -hmm. so that local government is now promoting that. But it's, we have to, again, in Ladakh, as here, 
I believe the, the thing that will make a big difference is when activists who have been focusing on one aspect from, say, pesticides causing cancer or climate change or the mountains of plastic or the poisoning of the water or the ill health and the, you know, epidemic now of not only depression and anxiety, but also epidemics of, of hypertension, obesity, you know, mm -hmm. the gap between rich and poor, the loss of democracy. So the issues to deal with seem endless and very overwhelming. And so what we're trying to get people to do, whether in Ladakh or here, is to just be willing to take a deep breath. And, you know, our message to them is if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to take a deep breath and just slow down a little bit, to search for a more meaningful way to address these crises. And, and first of all, people may need to be reminded or to hear that we have this proliferation of very frightening crises, mm. both social and environmental. Um, but, you know, most people are probably aware of that. But then the message is instead of tackling them individually as single issues, let's see if they're linked Mm. And just try to deal with that. So that's what what we're what we're mm. trying to encourage. And it how does, how has your thoughts about it changed in recent years? Considering with all the IPCC reports saying, you know, the sort of like this time now, it feels like the the pressure is is on. Has that shifted how you communicate your message or how you think we need to act? Is there something? that's changed or is it just reinforced what you've been saying all along? I think it hasn't changed at all. It hasn't. I mean, the only thing that's changed that, that um, where I'm a bit, you know, uh, hesitant to talk about it, but I really think we have to understand that not only that these crises are linked, but that they're linked to the power of global corporations mm -hmm. and that those global corporations are now spending more and more money to ensure that we don't identify them as the problem. And so the amount of money that's going into a type of propaganda and a type of distortion of issues, not lying, it's not so much about lies as about omission and about a narrow focus. So from my point of view, what, what may, you know, what may win ultimately in terms of uh, for the next few decades, the world just hurtling from one crisis to the next, more pandemics, more frightening weather events and so on, more violence, more, yeah, is that we're, we're not... We're not taking the time to step back and look because it can feel so overwhelming. So people often tend to shy away from looking at that bigger picture. When I really feel, I just want to beg them, please, please do this. Because when you do and you see that there's a way of focusing on central structural ways of changing things, it becomes so much easier. And particularly when one of those aspects of that is to actually start the process of localization which is so healing mm -hmm. so that once you understand how centrally important that is it can be so satisfying and nurturing to engage in that but of course the problem is that we're saying that's not enough mm -hmm. we're saying that we also want to um but it's still it's still i feel like if people could hear what we're trying to say their anxiety could be reduced, their sense of empowerment could be increased, their sense of, not just sense, their health could be improved, both mental and physical, by simply taking those steps to localize. Mm -hmm. And then we're saying with twice as much energy and more health and strength and turning the I into a we, you will also be empowered to tackle change at the policy level. And, and, and that, that's very urgent. So we... And so how do you think people can tackle the policy level change? How do we how do localized communities 
do that? At what scale are you talking about? Well, this is something too that I feel like I should write more about, but I've, I've, um, because, okay, so first of all, the way that <clears throat> the whole sort of localization movement is beginning to tackle policy change, a lot of it is from the bottom up mm -hmm. and first reaching more local governments. But so, for instance, You know, one thing that's happened, and I think partly through our work and someone who worked with us, they've started a system in America where, which is now in several states where people who get food stamps get twice as much for their money if they buy from local farmers markets. So with that, they're actually tackling a major environmental issue and a major social issue at the same time. Yeah. And, and it's... And it's the exact opposite of what's been happening because government subsidies have been supporting the big to get bigger. And in doing that, you know, all the time, policies are locked into using the most energy intensive, the most resource intensive way to do things from farming to house building to everything. But farming is so centrally important while destroying jobs you know, on a crowded planet. So, yeah, so that now one way is from the bottom up, but what we're, what we also want is for people to understand that the key, the key issue we're talking about is that deregulated banks and corporations are all, are giving our governments their instructions and that's got to be reversed. But what we have is a world where these global corporations operating with their power and their influence in a rather invisible way and lots of propaganda was to prevent us from seeing that. And then meanwhile, as government are getting elected, as they seek election, they're talking to the voter and they talk to the voter about climate, about jobs, about things they care about. And then the minute they're in power, they don't seem to be listening anymore. And, you know, I've seen that with so many friends, even I've had many friends who were um, activists who went into politics and just had to change their tune. And I don't see it. So for me, it's not about good people and bad people. It's about understanding that the structures absolutely do not serve democracy. So if going into politics is yeah. not necessarily the answer, It's absolutely not the answer. <laughs> and it's not the, it's, the answer is not either to lobby politicians. See, the answer is to, if you can imagine that we create a new economy movement, which is growing, mm -hmm. but it's getting often co-opted into focusing either on just the social or the environmental issues. As they get co-opted, and in America it's happened in a huge way into the social issues it becomes the politics of identity mm -hmm. and the belief that if we just have more women and more people of color then everything will be fine not looking at the structures or you have resource economics environmental economics that again they're not dealing with the problem of the corporate takeover of our governments mm -hmm. and the, and that problem will be solved through new trade treaties. And those trade treaties now need to be actually negotiations between governments. Mm -hmm. They aren't actually that as much as they are negotiations between governments and corporations. So the corporations are at the table. They're the ones that are winning from it, whether it's beef from Australia to Korea or, or you know, the UK-Australian trade treaties. Now, it's just... So people need to, they don't need to become trade experts. They don't need to become economists. They don't, they just need to be looking more at the materials that, you know, groups like we, like we produce to mm -hmm. start speaking out about this and, and then to build up. And it could happen quickly. You know, if you imagine that people realize, okay, so, I'm now being told that just focusing on climate isn't enough. So I need to be looking at what's causing poverty and the gap between rich and poor as well. And the way to do that is to deal with the economy, 
and dealing with the economy, it's to do with the trade treaties. There could be a sort of explosion of interest, but then the big issue is how you get it out. Where have you seen this working well? Like, in which communities have you seen this movement of of action at a systemic level? What's a great example? <laughs> I, I mean, I definitely feel encouraged by the growth in in the sort of new economy initiatives and organisations. I do also feel encouraged by even a bit into the mainstream media after COVID and the clear concern about being dependent on the global market when you don't even have enough masks, you know. So, and, and, and also, you know, a clear shift towards interest in food security and, and even in seed conservation. So I see lots of things, but I don't see, I can't point to any one country where I can say that there are huge, significant steps forward. I have a lot of interest from South Korea. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, I think, where are we today? No, on Sunday, they're coming to film for a television thing. And I've been in the, in the mainstream media there a fair amount. And So getting this into the mainstream media is something that you think would help make a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But it's, and it's really... It's virtually important. Having the conversations and getting the word out, not trying to be in the system, but being independent to be able to speak up and speak out about it and these conversations being had in at all levels. Yeah. Really. Yeah. 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 And, and so I really think there is the potential for that sort of aha thing where all those people who are still you know, really concerned. I mean, the, the frightening thing is as people get more poor, in, especially in terms of time mm-hmm. in the West, it's one of the most scary things. The time poverty, which leads to simplistic, you know, the social media, superficial stuff is very scary. So the um, taking the time to think more deeply and ideally doing Latin groups is the... Mm-hmm. I remember you created study group materials yeah. a long time ago. Do you still have those? I mean, that's something I think that, you know, even using, I know it's better to be in a group together, but while people are in lockdown, even creating, you know, online conversation groups that can connect people globally too. Yeah, yeah. Do you yeah, have I mean, I would, I, we, we keep meaning now to do that in the form of courses Mm. Uh, and what we do still have those materials, but you know, back then, it is that is really scary when I think of that because you know people were willing to take much more time over it, mm-hmm. and because we were dealing with, um, you know, we were really trying for people to understand what was happening on the other side of the world, and it was, you know, it, it took off to the extent that we had a few hundred groups and. There was a lot of interest, but you know, when I think back, if I think, could we have done things differently if we'd only focused on that and not, you know, say on the film, the economics of happiness, or yeah, I'm not quite sure what. Mm. Can you? um, So, with the economics of happiness, um, where is that film take? from shifting from say ancient futures into the economics of happiness and ancient futures went around the world with your book and with the film was did you notice the same uptake with the economics of happiness was there a, and yeah, you've done I would say I think the economics of happiness is in about 23 or 25 languages which I think ancient futures between the book and the uh, and the film were more like over 40 languages, actually mm. close to 50, but we lost track of some of them. Mm. Um, but it still had a huge response, the economics of happiness. And then we set up a Facebook page mm-hmm. um, and it shot up to 140,000 very quickly, but then we've been shadow banned, so it's not growing. Mm. And that's really scary and it's really... You know, it's sort of, we know that 
this whole idea of decentralizing and localizing is very threatening to global corporation. And it's absolutely not, you know, Facebook and so on, they, mm-hmm. they are avid proponents of globalization. No, I know. But, you know, the, all the algorithms, you see the things that grow. Yeah. Um, you know, I watch and things where you talk about little simple, non-threatening things, they'll go through the roof. But if you talk about anything challenging, yeah. it just gets nothing. And I wonder whether it's the people, it's not that people aren't interested. I just think the algorithms yeah. that are behind it don't let it be seen somehow. I, is that what you found with your stuff? Yes. You know, if I and I... And I try not to think of anything conspiracy or anything, but it's just the algorithms don't pick it up. And yeah. and I even I see that. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say even to the point, like when I started my YouTube channel, I said I'm not going to advertise on it. I don't want any advertising on it. And then I discovered that unless you put advertising on a YouTube channel, the algorithms wouldn't let people see your stuff as much. Soon as I started putting advertising on my, like allowing people to advertise on my. Thing, it went up. And so you have to play with this thing. Like, do you want to be talking to crickets or do you do you want the word to get out? And and it's this fine line that you have to walk. And um it's so challenging. Yeah, no, it's very challenging and it's very worrying. And I think that the social dilemma, you know, spelling out what's happening with the algorithms and the polarization, very important that we understand that. You know, I was asking you where you'd seen some examples, but I also wanted to ask you who who you're looking at now that is really inspiring you, continuing to feed and nourish you. What like what thinking and what work are you seeing? What people, what writing are you reading? Well, I was very inspired by the book Humankind by Bregman. I don't know if you've heard of it. He's Dutch. Very, I'm so glad to see that get out. I just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been very scary that that message, people don't realize, has been silenced. Mm -hmm. And it's a key part of rethinking this whole path of progress because, Mm -hmm. you know, the part that was pushed is that we are greedy and aggressive by nature and Mm -hmm. that many pieces of it also were just that, but everything went you know, downwards once we started agriculture, which is not true, you know, which locks us into this sort of worldview where, you know, you think that we can't feed ourselves and without destroying the planet. Well, it's absolutely not true. And and it never was true. It was this industrial agriculture that was so destructive, you know, much later. But anyway, uh, that book, I'm very happy that Ian McGilchrist has had... Mm-hmm so much influence and he's a great friend and and I think um you know I really like what Russell Brand is doing and he's also been you know of support and I had a but you know what I was going to say most of these they're not actually the Bregman and Russell Brand luckily I'm not so old but Ian is about my age maybe not quite and also Gabo Mate, whom I did a conversation with recently, was very, you know, wonderful. But I do worry that there aren't so many young people who have that faith mm. in that we were actually more collaborative and happier and healthier when we lived in more intergenerational, mm-hmm. community-based structures, closer to life, closer to the animals and the plants. Um, and again, you know, not perfection, not, I think Ladakh was probably exceptionally harmonious, mm. but it's still the truth of benefiting from particularly, as I say, intergenerational connections and the connection to nature that's so vital. Yeah. And I feel maybe more than anything, I feel inspired by the, the young people I'm in touch with who are... Um, getting on with people like you, you know, the young people I've known over the years who get on with the community building and the local food uh, world. I just find them happier and healthier than any people. So that that's more than anything is what inspires me. 
And I, you know, I I know that you've been forever also talking about this, you know, redefining progress and and redefining what is that narrative that we need to be, you know, thinking into so that we can reimagine the future that we're we're working towards. And maybe that's where we can go in in some future conversations, exploring the type of food systems, the type of you know, building community and place making and um, education, exploring the type of education, because I know you've had lots of conversations um, around that topic because it's, um, it's it, I, I've chosen to homeschool my kids. Well, actually, they chose to homeschool. They found the education system um, lacking in, in many ways. And I think, you know, considering where we're going, right now what it is that all of our young people are spending their days learning is critically important as what they're learning and how they're learning so perhaps you know spending a bit of time talking about that in a future conversation would be great too yeah i'd love to do that i'd love to do that and i feel that um yeah i feel that there's so much more to say about the big picture but Wow, time goes so quickly. I know. Well, I mean, maybe we can wrap up this this part of our conversation series by um, looking at what what is the key call to action that you would like to share with with people, and um, and then also to let us know where it is that people can find the information that you're sharing, and I'll make sure that all of that gets in the show notes below well i think you know i suppose i like to leave people with five words in terms of call to action and it's the first one is connect the next one is rethink resist renew and celebrate Mm -hmm. so we're urging people as a first step to seek out some like-minded people which could already sound, I suppose, like a huge challenge, but I think it's a question of just thinking of someone you know, maybe a friend, who is willing to go on this journey to realize that if we don't quickly move beyond treating isolated symptoms to treating this, these crises we face in a linked-up way, we're, we're just going to see more and more problems. And... And then, you know, on top of that, we're offering that the very real message that if you do connect with others, you're more likely to heal inner problems and conflicts as well. So it's a healing part. And the, the, so the rethinking is a very important part of the call to action. Now, that may, you know, that may have to take a while to look at some of our films, some of our writings and so on. And then we're urging people not to shy away from being willing to say no. And it's a no to the continuation, the expansion of this system. There they need to be a bit alert to a whole range of ideas that take us down the path, either of single issue or even of, of, you know, treating symptoms in a way that actually really exacerbate the problem. Mm And the renewal is the localizing path. And then the celebration is the reminder to everyone to keep reminding themselves and others of the remarkable beauty, health, and joy that is to be found in the real living world. So with all of this, yeah, we have materials on our website. I mean, I suppose one of the things people could do is sign up for our IAL and they get some materials, some articles, and so on, a weekly basis. Just say what the IAL is. Yeah, it's the International Alliance for Localization. Yeah. And so the first thing to do would be to come to our website, which is localfutures.org, and they should also please look at the World Localization Day programs, which hopefully will give people a sense of their wide array of really positive things that are going on, but also some of the clear 
minded people who are questioning the dominant path of progress. Mm -hmm. As you said, you know, redefining progress is one way to, to look at it. And that also means, you know, redefining what it is that we really need and we really want, who we really are. We've been told we're greedy and aggressive and that we want all these consumer goods. This comes from us. We're demanding it. No, it's never happened that way. Mm. It was foisted on us. And it wasn't foisted on us by evil people, but it was foisted on us by a system that had become so big that nobody was looking at it. There was no, you know, you would have had to be God himself to sit above that whole empire, sit looking down to see this. And it's it really is just by chance that in our case, I started because Ladakh mm-hmm. had been left out of that influence. Most of the world had already been influenced through colonialism or even earlier slavery. It's that comparison between the two, that the difference to yeah. see it so closely. Yeah. I think it's yeah. and 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 having the opportunity to come up and and volunteer with you in Ladakh and seeing it for myself as well helped it because there's one thing hearing it, isn't it? And there's another thing being fully in it and seeing it. And um, like you've um, seen it over time, that change, um, incredibly powerful and an amazing insight. And thank you so much for sharing today, Helen. Well, um, thank you. Thank you. I hope we can get it out. And thank you for all your work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Sense Making in a Changing World, the first of our special four-part series celebrating and exploring localization with Helena Norberg Hodge of Local Futures. Remember, you can find out lots of links in the show notes below and come back next week for part two and explore relocalization of our food system.